I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. I'm Kyle McEntee. In this episode, I interview a commercial litigator at a large firm who is relatively early in his career. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey, where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law and its two locations, The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit communities. We're joined today by Chikupe Nzegu, a 2020 graduate of the University of Maryland School of Law who primarily practices commercial litigation, but also has experience in white-collar defense. He's an associate at Womble Bond Dickinson in Baltimore, Maryland, though sometimes works out at the D.C. office. I think one of the most interesting things about your story is both how you ended up at Maryland and how you ended up practicing commercial litigation. So you went to college at Vanderbilt, but chose to come back to Maryland for law school. What were some of the factors that led you to choose the University of Maryland? Being a Maryland native, a lot of my family is in the Maryland and D.C. area. It's an area I really enjoyed growing up in and knew I wanted to come back to. And so I was looking at law schools that would provide me good job opportunities after in this area. I saw that it not only you know put a lot of graduates in the D.C. area as well as the Maryland area, but it also gave opportunity to try cool subject matter, such as their immigration program, which is really strong, their environmental program, and their international program. And there's even some uh, connection between their environmental international program, which as a political science with a base in the international side, it was really appealing to me. So you didn't go to law school then wanting to practice commercial law. You actually were interested in environmental and immigration law, right? Yep, that's right. <laughs> And I didn't really have an opportunity to try commercial litigation until my second year summer. That first summer, I had spent time at an immigration nonprofit providing legal services. I was working on asylum claims, helping individuals who were fleeing persecution, filing their status here in the States, as well as U visas, which I found very fascinating. So a really cool experience. And yet you ended up going in a different direction. Why did you end up? ultimately deciding to go to Womble and doing commercial lit instead. I didn't know about the commercial experience until a lot of people that first year talked about their summers when we came back in the second year. And then that first summer as well, 
it was a lot of stuff was going on in my family and I was kind of being a financial drain in a sense of which I didn't have a paid opportunity that summer doing the immigration work. My family was helping to pay my bills that summer and up until the beginning of fall until, you know, the next loan check came in. And it was just a very uncomfortable feeling knowing that we had things going on in the family and I wasn't able to help at that point. Not that anyone was saying that was an issue or anything, but I come from a very giving family and I hope to be able to reciprocate that sooner. Yeah, I think that's pretty common to look at the financial opportunities at a, at a large firm and want to share the wealth with your family, especially as they've supported you as they had. As you got into your second year, your 2L summer job with Womble, what was that experience like? The 2L summer, I split it between doing commercial litigation and the transactional law. I wanted to get an opportunity to try what contract drafting is like, governance of a corporate entity. So, you know, maybe an entity asks you to help make a new company for them, or they want to change the structure of their board of government. So you're helping them with their internal documents restructuring the hierarchy or how voting works. So I got to do some of these cool transactional projects because in law school, I didn't really have that experience. Most of my experience in law school was litigation-based. So I made sure to take in as much opportunity as I could. And Womble was really good at providing access to different, not only attorneys, but work not only in Maryland, but also throughout their different offices in North Carolina in DC. And it really gave me a great opportunity to work with different people across the firm. So with the variety of practice areas you were exposed to that summer, did you really have much of a choice when you ultimately ended up going down the commercial litigation path? I would say it came down to what I wanted to do. And I chose the commercial litigation route with the understanding that it's a very varied uh, practice area. I hadn't even really touched the surface that summer compared to, you know, as we'll get later in this conversation, the work that I've been able to do now versus what I've done in that summer, it's grown exponentially. So it sounds like then you had the option to go down the commercial litigation path. What pushed you in that direction compared to some of the other work you're doing, say, board governance? You know, this is what I'm going to say is like a TV moment. In law school, I did mock trial and I really enjoy that experience, being able to direct examine witnesses. So let's elicit testimony from your own witness or do a cross-examination that's asking, you know, an adverse witness questions. Those aspects were really fun in the mock setting. And I knew that to me in my career, I would hope to have trial experience, litigation experience, motion writing, and get to that oral advocacy part. Everybody wants to kind of be like my cousin Vinny, right? Everybody wants to kind of be that <laughs> trial attorney who has a really good trial. And I knew that this would be one of the opportunities to do it. And I've been glad to have had, you know, an opportunity already. And I'm hoping for more to come in the future too, depending on how things look. But I would say that's really what pushed me instead of transactional law. I was, how can I get in front of a judge, a jury, other people to speak? And I believe litigation would be one of the best ways to do it. So let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into what you're doing in litigation. When you're at a dinner party or at home with extended family, how do you explain what commercial litigation is and who you represent? I always explain commercial litigation as I'm a problem solver for a different set of clients who are either looking to get engaged in a lawsuit or defending a lawsuit. So that, that might mean that my client was injured by another party 
and they go to court to decide how much that injury is worth. And I'm representing my client as the best advocate possible to get them the most for the injury that they suffered. On the flip side, you might also be representing an entity who is alleged to have done something and you look at the evidence and you find out nothing was done. Every person, every entity deserves a proper defense. And so I also do that. And it's a lot of complex matters where you have to sit down, you really have to think, look at the facts and work really well with your team to collaborate and bounce ideas off of each other. So you used the word injury earlier, and I'm fearful people are going to hear that and think broken arm. But what do you mean by that? In the law sense, when we talk about an injury, it can be more seen as like a wrong that a person or entity has suffered. Injury just means that if we were two people, status quo, and something happens between the two people, maybe there was a contract. And, you know, I said, Kyle, I'll pay you $500 to paint my house. And I gave you the $500 and you said you would paint my house by the end of June. And June comes around and you didn't paint my house. Now we're in July. It's sweltering heat. The paint's chipping and it looks really bad. Now I'm sad. And I say, you know what, Kyle, are you going to paint my house or not? And you say, I'm not going to do it. And so that's another type of injury, which we call breach of contract, because Kyle and I had an agreement. I performed on the agreement, which means I give Kyle $500. Kyle's obligation was then to paint my house, but Kyle didn't do it. And so that's an injury to me because I paid $500, but never received anything in return. You can see that injuries go beyond just you know a personal injury lawyer that you might see on an ad for TV that is saying, like, if you've been hit by a car, that you'd be able to sue whoever injured you and hit you. So this house painting example hits a little close to home because I actually <laughs> ran a small company in high school and early college and we painted houses and we painted fences and farms and all that kind of stuff. So for the record, I never I never breached a contract. Good. All right. So hear that folks. Kyle never caused an injury to anybody when painting <laughs> those houses. <laughs> Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes.
All right. So as a junior associate, you really are doing the cases assigned to you by a partner. At what point are you typically beginning to work on a case? So I've had opportunities to join in the beginning of a case as well as join the middle of cases. The fall of the year I started, I got to start in the beginning of a case involving a biotech company as a client. It started in state court and I was able to start from the complaint, get familiar with the facts, and we went from the state court to the federal court by a process called removal. And that just means that there's a basis under federal law to take a claim that someone has sued for from the state court to the federal court. Now, in the federal court we were in, we found it wasn't going to be the proper venue or jurisdiction based on the allegations. One of the big formative assignments that I got to work on, which is pretty cool because in law school, you learn about something called transferring venue. And that just means moving the case from one jurisdiction to another for a set of reasons. Some of them might be the location of where the witnesses are, the location of where the claims are alleged to have occurred, where the contract was drafted. And so information such as that is what you would put into this kind of motion to transfer venue. So not only did you work on removal from state to federal court, you then moved venue within the federal court system. Correct. Within the federal court system. I was assigned to do the drafting for this motion, and it was my first time writing this kind of motion. It was a lot of fun working really close with a partner, getting more of the facts that the partner was more aware of. When all was said and done and the final product was completed, fortunately, it was granted by the judge the uh, opposing side really felt that the transfer motion was very good and didn't have too many complaints about it and didn't oppose it. So that was a really cool, like, wow, it's good. It's like airtight. That's wonderful. Nice. That was a really cool opportunity. And then that case kept going, right? So we transferred it from one federal court to another federal court. And in that next federal court, we filed a motion to dismiss. I got to do a lot of the research and drafting for our statute of limitations argument. And the statute of limitations says, plaintiff, once you understand that you've been injured, that you've suffered a harm, you don't have all the time in the world to go to court. Usually, the general statute of limitations are about three or four years. I was doing this research to find out when the plaintiff would have discovered the harm, if that time had accrued, and whether or not they would have been barred, we call it being time barred from filing those claims. And if you are indeed time barred, you can use a motion to dismiss to raise that defense and the court can grant it. And in this case, what was the finding? In this case, through the research, we believe that the uh, plaintiff was time barred and the court also believed that too. And ultimately the motion to dismiss was on those grounds and others was fully granted. So I'm guessing the plaintiff was not too happy about this. Did they end up appealing? That's exactly it. The plaintiff was not happy with all his claims being dismissed. And so we went and proceeded to uh, do the appeal. The appeal goes up, you know, so you go up another level in the federal courts. I did some more research on that for some of the claims. We had an oral argument on that where a couple of our lawyers went and argued in D.C. and the appellate court affirmed the decision of the district court. So that means they found that the district court properly ruled in dismissing the plaintiff's claims. And it was really cool to kind of go from the complaint, removal, transferring the venue, motion to dismiss, appeal, and the affirmance of that motion to dismiss and really see a case 
from the beginning to end. And so that went from, you know, the fall of 2021 into the winter of 2023. And I hope people understand how unusual it is for someone so earlier in their career to actually get to see the beginning of a case and then the end of a case. But let's talk a little bit about your experience and how it differs when you're added to a case that's already in progress. Why does that happen in the first place? There might be some staffing changes. There might be that someone has a trial coming up and so they have to hop off of a matter and they need someone else to step in. Or, you know, sometimes lawyers, we like vacations too. And the vacation schedule is in. And so there has to be a little swap in who's handling a case at a certain point. In law school, constitutional law was not for me. But one of the cases I got involved in required me to do some really deep constitutional research. I started liking it a lot, actually. I was able to find a really niche method to challenge the constitutionality of a statute. And we proceeded with that as a huge argument in one of our briefs. And that was really helpful to the client's business. So what I'm hearing here is basically when you're thrown into the middle of a case, you got to get up to speed on the facts. You got to get up to speed on the law. And then whatever you're assigned, you just got to be ready for the next steps. That's right. I would say the best way to do that is really, it's, you got to ask a lot of questions. And I think that's one thing I've really learned over the past three years is there's never too many questions. It's taking that time early, but first trying it first to make sure you understand the basic ongoings before you ask any detailed questions and follow-up questions rather than things you could have just read, right? I've been working very hard to make sure that I'm like, all right, so this is the universe of this case. Let me do some ancillary research that might help me understand what is going on in this case. That might be you know, going on Google, reading additional files. And then I look at it and say, okay, this is what my assignment is. What are some questions I have that would help me complete this assignment successfully? And going with that and going to a senior associate on the matter, going to a partner and just taking that time early on to get that information. It's very helpful to do that and it pays off in the long run. Yeah, definitely one of the advantages of being at a, at a larger firm as opposed to starting your career working with just one other lawyer or by yourself. It has been a really good learning experience having different lawyers to learn from, seeing different styles. Everyone has really great advice and you know it's been nice to have that large support. So something conspicuous is missing from our discussion, doctor view. So uh, <laughs> first of all, for those of our listeners who don't know what that is, can you kind of provide a brief explanation of what doctor view is and why I'm so surprised? Document review is actually really important as much as people have differing opinions on what it is or how laborious it may be document review helps to build the universe of a case there's two ways to look at doc review you have the party who is giving the other party documents and this is what we call discovery party a says hey i would like to know x y and z party b says okay these are the documents that relate to x y and z before Party B gives those documents relating to X, Y, and Z, they first have a team of lawyers to go through the documents to come through and decide whether it's A, relevant, and that just means whether or not it could likely relate to a fact, a claim, a defense, or a part of the trial, right? The case that's getting built in the universe. And they'll also be looking at something called privilege. It's really important that a lawyer that is reviewing documents identifies what those communications in the documents that are privileged are because 
it would actually be a violation of the ethics of a lawyer to produce these documents that are putting its clients' information in the public that should have been redacted. So Docker review is really important on the producing side. And then we also have document review on the reviewing side now, right? So party B has gone through the documents they think are responsive that relate to the questions that party A asked about X, Y, and Z. And now that they've produced these documents to party A, party A is now going to review the documents because they're going to look for which documents are going to help them to build their case, whether that's for their defenses or for their, their claims, or you know, it might even be used for something we call impeachment. And that means this is evidence that would later be used if someone says something contrary to it. So let's say, for example, Kyle and I agree to get lunch on Thursday. Thursday comes around. I'm like, all right, Kyle, it's time for lunch. And Kyle says, hmm, we agreed for Friday. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, no, Kyle, like we, we agreed for Thursday. He's like, no, 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 no. So I pull out a text message, right? I'm like, Kyle, you said on Wednesday, are we still good for lunch on Thursday? So that's why document review can be really important because that evidence right there of that text message being used to show that now at this time, Kyle is saying something different can be really pivotal to a case. So doc review is so important in getting information that could be used later now to build a case. And it helps parties decide like, how much is this case really worth because of the realm of information they have? A lot of the times, this is, you know, you might have seen this on TV that you'll see lawyers going through hundreds of documents and they're just going and going. You know, sometimes that's what document review is like. And I've been involved in a case with extensive document review, but I didn't really get involved until my second year, which is why Kyle is finding that really, you know, odd. And I think it was really fortunate to get it at that later point because then I had a better understanding of why we do document review, how a case moves along in the discovery process. And through this opportunity, I even got uh, able to help with a document protocol and lead a team of reviewers. There were people reporting to me, telling me like, this is what I found. Uh, I think these are important documents for you to look at. And then I would be the next frame before the partners and the senior associates to say, okay, so this is what we found in today's review. I believe that these are the ones that are important based on X, Y, and Z. And so I kicked those up, but you can't do that if you don't know the facts, if you're not getting involved with the case and really trying to learn it. So litigation's not all about being in court. We all can't be Perry Mason, right? You have to, you got to get the facts before you can yell about the law. That's right. If you don't have the facts and you don't have the law, I don't know what you have. <laughs> <laughs> I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.